Good morning. It's good to see you. Can you believe it's, it's still nice? <laughs> which, is really, which is really good. Uh, before we jump into Romans, I need to apologize. Uh, I did it in the first service. I need to do it in the second service. I just, it, I missed it completely on Sunday. And that was that uh, we intended to recognize the veterans. And I just completely missed it. And I'm very, very sorry for that. Uh, we observed um, Veterans Day and, and the Sunday before that I was going to, you know, I was supposed to say something. So I, w- I don't want to pass the opportunity up to do it again. So if you are a, a veteran, would you please stand so we can thank you and acknowledge you if you're a veteran. Stand up if you would. There we go. There we go. There we go. Yep. Yep. Very good. Very good. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for serving our our country, and thank you for your patience with me. I hope when you left last week, you thought, what a bonehead that guy is. So hopefully you'll walk out thinking a little bit differently maybe uh, this morning. But let me pray and ask for God's blessing as we jump into his word. Father, thank you so very much for your love for us and your patience with us. And God, I thank you for every person here and every person that's tuned in on the live stream. Lord, uh, we're your family, and we come from all different walks of life, and we're at different places spiritually, and that excites me. God, I know it excites you. I pray that you would speak through me as I have nothing to say. Zippo. But God, you have everything to say. Use me, please, and, and, and speak word into each and every person here in the only way that you can, Lord, for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are continuing our study of the book of Romans. And last week, we really kind of, um, we hit the spiritual jackpot. And I'll, I'll bring you up to speed if you missed that last week uh, here real quickly. But I wanted to start this morning by asking you to think about something. I know you might think I'm morbid. I don't mean to be. But I, I'm going to, I want us to think about something that is in front of every single one of us in this room. And it's unavoidable. And that is that one day you're going to die and I'm going to die. And we're going to stand before God, and in some way, it might sound exactly like this, it might sound a little different, but he's going to say, why should I let you into heaven? And I'm curious how you're going to answer that, because there is a right answer, and there are plenty of wrong answers. And as I've asked that question over the years, as I've heard other people uh, answer it kind of to themselves in, in terms of thinking aloud about it. I've heard a few answers, and I'm, I'm curious which one of the answers I'm about to read, if any of them, which one of these maybe approximates how you might answer that question. And the first one sounds something like this. Again, answering the question, why should I let you into heaven? And the first answer goes like this. I've tried my very best to be a good Christian. Is that, is that a way that you would answer that question? Is, is that kind of maybe match up with, with your heart and your thoughts about it? Another way to answer it is, I believe in Jesus, and I'm doing my very best to honor him, to do his will, to obey his commands. Maybe that's how you might answer the question. Or third and last, I believe in him with all of my heart. God says, why shall I let you into heaven? You say, God, because I believe in Jesus with all of my heart. Now, would you, did one of those answers resonate with how you might answer that question because believe it or not not one of those is the right answer it's not the correct answer so the question is well then what is the correct answer because you might be thinking wait a minute one of those kind of sounded like that's yeah I kind of I would have said it that way 
Well, that's why we're talking about Romans chapter 4 this morning. Because last week, if you recall, we talked about the spiritual lottery, which I didn't realize. This is funny. Someone came up to me. I talked to them a a couple days ago. And they told me that I used that exact title like back in May for Ephesians chapter 1. I went, really? I never knew that. I, I didn't know how to take that. I thought, wow, you remember what I talked about back in May? Or, hey, Bozo, quit using the same titles. I, I don't know which, which way to take it. But I think the title applies to both Ephesians 1 and Romans chapter 3, the last part of chapter 3. And there's a sign right there. That's, that's what that is. I better put these up right because this could really throw off Thomas when he gets up here. I hope I did that right. Um, but let's go back last week for a minute. Because Paul was rolling out. The fact that, and if you remember, he had this battering ram, faith in Christ, belief in Christ, faith in Christ, belief in Christ. And, and that was tied to the spiritual jackpot saying that everyone who put their faith in Christ, that they were justified, they were redeemed, uh, that, um, that they, there was propitiation for their sins, meaning that God's anger, I mean, when Jesus died on the cross, not only did he die to justify us and to redeem us, but to take away the anger of God. So that those who put their faith and trust in Christ, God is never angry at you. And that's hard for us to, to really live in light of because we, sometimes we do things, we go, I'm angry at myself. How can God not be angry at me? And, and because we think he's angry as we, we ignore him or we try to run from him or we don't talk to him because I wouldn't talk to somebody I was really angry with. But that's not true. In the winning jackpot, The anger of God is taken away by Christ. And we said, what's the winning ticket? How do we access the jackpot? How do we win? And and Paul said, faith in Christ. Now remember, it was really important because this is where we're gonna go in chapter four. Paul drills down deeper on that idea of faith in Christ. Remember, we said faith is not a work, but it is a decision. It is a choice. But in that choice, and if you choose to have faith in Christ, that's not a good work on your part that in any way it puts God in, into debt, that he owes you anything. And remember, I used the example of, say I wanted to give you a million dollars for no reason. I just wanted to gift you a million dollars, no strings attached. And I said to those of you that are a little bit older who, who really you know, like a check, I said, all you got to do is sign the back of the check. You just have to endorse the check. To those of you that are younger, you'd say, what's a check? Uh, I would Venmo it to you. And all I'd say is you you just got to download the Venmo app and you get a million dollars. And in either case, writing, endorsing the back of a check or downloading the app, that's not work. You haven't done anything at all to deserve the million dollars. But what you have done is you've created now a way, a a conduit for the blessing, for for the million dollars to pass from my account and into yours. And so when Paul's battering this ram about faith in Christ, faith in Christ, he's not saying as it, that it's a, it's, it's a work, it's your contribution, it's your part in this whole salvation equation. No, he's saying in order for the blessings, the spiritual blessings of justification, redemption, and propitiation, they pass through and come to you through a decision, putting your faith in Christ. And so because that is so important, 
Paul is now going to drill down on this idea of faith and how important and critical it is to our relationship with God. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to explore through Romans chapter 4, what is the answer to the question? Because it seems like a pretty important question. I mean, if you're standing there before God and he says, all right, I should let you in. I would think everyone in this room would really want to know the answer to that question and get it right. So with that in mind, let's turn to our table of contents. Get your Bibles open, Bible apps open, those of you here, those of you that are tuned in live stream. And let's find the book of Romans. It is the sixth book down of your Bible. Romans chapter number four. We've kind of been brought up to speed on what the last part of chapter three was all about. Now let's pick it up with Romans chapter four. And we are on a hunt for what is the answer to the question that I asked you moments ago. Chapter four, verse one. What then can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, pay is not considered as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the man God credits righteousness to apart, to apart from works. How, and, and he's quoting here now uh, Psalm 32. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. So remember the church in Rome. Paul is writing this letter to Jewish Christians and to Gentiles. And remember, the Jews were the ones who had the history, the lineage, the legacy. With God. They were God's people, God's covenantal people, and they had the law, and they had God's commands, and they were working off of this mindset that as they obeyed and as they honored the commands of God, that they were somehow earning, meriting God's favor, God's salvation. And Paul is just trying to break that up. It's like a barnacle on a boat. He's just trying to get it off. And then you had the Gentiles who came in way late in the game. And the Jews and the Gentiles didn't get along because the Jews go, hey, we, we've been busting our chops for a long time. You're, you're just coming in on this deal right now? How, how is fair is that? My friends, that's grace. Grace is not fair. All right? And that's a good thing. But anyways, Paul is really this morning and in chapter 4, he is kind of getting the, 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 the right half of the pews. He's trying to come at the, he's coming at the Jews again, this idea of faith. And he pulls out some big guns. He pulls out the two most influential, powerful, most important people in Jewish life and Jewish history. Abraham and David. Abraham is the father of the Jews. He is the one that God, in Genesis chapter 12, he pulls him out of his country where he is, comfortable as he is. He says, I want you to leave. He's 75 years old when God invites him on this incredible journey. I want you to leave and I'm going to take you to a promised land where you will become a nation. I will give you many descendants and you will bless many nations. I mean, that's an epically like big vision for life. And in Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham. Abraham believes him, leaves and goes. And then God 
makes a covenant with him in Genesis chapter 15, just, just so that that promise is secure and steadfast. And then in Genesis 17, as a sign of the covenant, he tells Abraham to circumcise himself and that all children on the male children on the eighth day would be circumcised as a sign of this amazing covenant, this amazing promise that was going to come to fruition. And all the while, he's married to Sarah, and they have no children, and they've tried. The Bible says that Sarah was barren. And so at 75, God makes this amazing promise to, to Abraham. He's saying, I'm 75. My wife is unable to conceive a child. And yet God still makes this promise that you will have many descendants, and you will be a great nation, and you will, make, and you will bless other nations. And so you can imagine that, that, that Abraham, um, that, that's, that's a tall order. But then God gives him Isaac. And Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And, and the promise gets passed on to Isaac. And then in Genesis chapter 22, God says, I want you, I want to test your faith, and I, and I want you to take Isaac, and I want you to sacrifice him to me. And, and, and Abraham walks the steps up to the altar and, he, and he's about to sacrifice Isaac and of course God stops him. But he passes the test of faith. That's the Abraham that Paul's now pulling out and he's bringing into his argument to get them to understand that it's not the works of the law that's gonna save them. Then he pulls David out. And David is the king of the Jews. I mean, he, he was like their greatest king ever. But David's also the one who had... His, one of his greatest warriors, greatest uh, soldiers, killed, put up on the front lines, killed to cover up his adultery, David's adultery with that man's wife. So we got murder and adultery in there. I mean, David, the greatest king in Israel's history, Paul pulls him out to speak about this thing called faith. To to. to, to as a battering ram to, to push back and to beat back this idea that there's any way that we can save ourselves. So that's what's happening here in those first eight verses. That's what's going on. But I want you to look at verse five specifically because he's calling out what, we, what he, he mentioned in chapter, the last part of chapter three as part of the spiritual lottery that we win. Verse five, he says, but to the one who does not work. Now, what he means by that, he's, he's not talking about lazy people, okay? He's talking about to the person who does not work to get salvation, to the person who's not trying to spiritually and morally perform to honor and garner the interest and provision and power and love of God. He says, but to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. What he's saying, again, to those, and, and he's talking to many of you, where, where in your heart of hearts, there's just, it's very difficult for you to let go of the fact that God gives to good people good things. And that somehow as you do the right things, in a way, you're, you know, God's accruing this debt that he owes you to do good things back to you. And, and what's happening here is that Paul is telling the Jewish Christians, no, Abraham was credited with righteousness. That's what he says in verse 3. Abraham was credited with righteousness. It didn't say that Abraham, did, by the works of the law, became righteous, but he was credited with righteousness by faith. And that's what he says in verse 5. He's saying that by faith, 
Are we credited with righteousness? What does that mean? My friends, what that means, just get your mind around this, is it means that when you put your faith in Jesus, when you make that choice, that decision, you then receive instantaneously credit for Jesus' perfect life. By putting your faith in Christ alone, you receive credit. God looks at you. God treats you. God interacts with you as if you lived his perfect life. And that's how he, forever, ongoing, that is what happens. That is how he sees you. That may not be how you see yourself. And again, I'll say this. Just think about this for a moment. You may go, I can't see myself that way. And that sounds like kind of a humble statement. But it's quite arrogant. Because what you're saying is, well, God's let me off the hook, but I can't let myself off the hook. My standard is higher than God's. Now, you better get straight on that. Because that will not work. That does not end well. But that's what we have. And that's what Paul's trying to drive them to. These Jews that have been working and working. Works of the law. Works of the law. It's exhausting. He says, go back to Abraham. Verse 3. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he's saying to the one who, who believes on the one who he says, who declares the ungodly to be righteous. I love that little added part there. Because what that is saying is, I know that I'm not perfect. My wife knows that I'm not perfect. You know you're not perfect. God knows you're not perfect. But he treats you as if you are. I mean, can you get better than that? That's what the power and the, the efficacy of the work of Christ on the cross. And when we put our faith in him and his work, we are treated as if we lived his perfect life, even though we still struggle at times with sin and we do stupid things. That doesn't change how God sees us. It doesn't change God's love for us. No, he disciplines us because he loves us, but it does not change his affection for us. It does not change how he sees us in right standing, justified, redeemed, and he's never, ever angry with us. And then did you pick up what David said in Psalm 32 of Verse 8, right? How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. Never. Never charge with sin. That means your faith in Jesus and my faith in Jesus and his work, it results in the fact that our sins will be forgiven forever. Forever. I mean, can you, can you live with those realities? Does that take a burden off you of guilt and shame and, and embarrassment? It's gone. You are forever credited with the righteousness of Christ. And all of your sins, past, present, and future, they are forgiven in Christ. And God's anger for those sins have been absorbed in Jesus so that he's never going to be angry again. Ever. Now, you have an adversary, and I have an adversary that wants us to think and to believe that because we would be angry, God's angry, but we're not God. Thank God we're not God. So Abraham is credited with this righteousness. Now notice, uh, let's skip the verses, look at verses 9 through 12. He's still, he, he's driving to the bucket here. He's got to get them to see this. And so he says to them in verse 9, Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? In other words, for the Jews. Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. And he's quoting what he just quoted in verse 3. It comes from Genesis chapter 15. It says, in what way then was it credited? 
while he was circumcised or uncircumcised. Now, I'm about to say a lot about circumcision. I'm going to try to say it without spitting all over you. And, and there's just a lot of times I'm going to say, sir, he just loves the word circumcision here. But l- before I finish reading it, let's understand what circumcision is. Uh, beyond just the physical aspect of it that we, you know, as parents, we're, most of us are aware of that. Circumcision was a sign that God gave to Abraham and said, and he commanded him, be circumcised. And circumcise all males on the eighth day of their lives as a sign. So it, it was a command. And Abraham honored the command. To those Gentiles, they didn't have that command, and so they were not circumcised. And so those who were circumcised, because it was God's command, because God gave it to them, they felt like when they obeyed it, when they honored it, that somehow they were meriting from God something. So because those who weren't circumcised, well, they're not as good as we are. They have not, they don't merit what we merit. So that's kind of where um, Paul is, is taking this conversation. So with that in mind, Verse number 10, in what way then was it credited while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Now, while he was circumcised, but not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. So he's pointing out that Abraham was credited with righteousness. This is really important before he was circumcised. So this idea of circumcision isn't quite as big a deal as the Jews were making it. And he's pointing out that Abraham, who was credited with righteousness, but it happened before he was circumcised. So verse 11, and he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that the righteousness may be credited to them also. He's saying, Abraham is the father of the Jews. He is circumcised, and he is the father of those who are circumcised. We get that. Paul knows that. Paul's a Jew. He understands that. But he's saying because Abraham was circumcised after he was credited with faith, that makes him the father also of all those who are not circumcised, but whose faith is in God as well. So Abraham is the father of all of those whose faith is in God, not merely the covenant people, the Jews. Paul's just trying to say, hey guys, it's, it's bigger than what you think it is. And then verse 12, and he became the father of the circumcised who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith our father Abraham had while he was still uncircumcised. So all of this, what we're the, the order of this is important to get them to see that circumcision, this, this, this idea that they, they can merit something from God, played no part in Abraham being credited with righteousness. In other words, with Abraham being saved, with, in other words, with Abraham being right with God, it did not play, the works of the law did not have anything to do with it. It was about faith in God. Now, this faith, Paul does say in verse 12, it's, it's not, and by faith, you might be thinking, or at least in a, in a practical way, you might understand faith to be mentally ascending to some set of beliefs. And you go, yeah, I believe that. I believe it. But what Paul's doing is he's connecting faith with, he says, the footsteps of faith. He's talking about faith and walk, faith and life. So in other words, what you believe is one thing, but what you how you live and how you act on your belief is a completely different thing and a more important thing. And so he's referring to this faith that's so important, but it's not merely something you mentally ascend to believe. It's something you actually then live out. It implies that faith is something more than just simply 
belief. Let's go to James. Let me go to James here real quick. He brings in this whole, this, this, this same um, aspect of Abraham's uh, faith that was credited to him in this way. And, and he's, he's bringing about this idea that faith is more than just what you believe. And, and in verse 14 of chapter 2 in, in James, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? In verse 18, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I'll show, you your, I'll show you faith from my works. And then in verses 21 and 22, he says, Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see, that faith was active together with his works, and by works, faith was perfected. So what we have to understand, this faith is really important. But saving faith is more than just mental assent. Saving faith is active faith. And so the good works that come from your faith, they are not prerequisites to God's favor. They are proof of God's favor. They're saying something happened to me. I put my faith and trust in Christ. Like Abraham said, I was, I, I was credited with righteousness before I was circumcised. But then once I was, I was circumcised, then afterwards as a sign that something had happened previously. That's the same thing for us. Our good works, the things we do to honor God, they, 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 they must come and, and deservedly so come after we've been born again, after we've received the Spirit of God, after we've put faith in Christ. Then they become the proof of our faith and not the prerequisite of it. So with that being said, he, he then anticipates, well, that means there's going to be an obvious question. The Jews are going to look at him like, well, then what's the purpose of the law? If it's just about faith, that just seems too easy. Uh, like I said, grace is scary. It just seems like, hey, anything can go. What's, what's the purpose of the law then? And with that anticipation, let's read verses 13 through 16. He says, For the promise to Abraham or to his, or to his descendants that he would inherit the world, which is a reference to Genesis chapter 12, was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs... Faith is made empty and the promise is canceled. In other words, if you live believing it's the works of the law, that's what's going to give you the inheritance that God has promised. He goes, then it's really not a promise. You've just earned it. That's all it really is. I mean, how many of you, where you work, when you get your paycheck, do you go walking into your boss's office and say, hey, thank you for this gift. I really appreciate it. Well, no, you're like, they owe me that. As a matter of fact, they owe me more than that. I'm going to go to my, my boss's office and say, hey, listen, thanks for the check, but you owe me more than that. I work harder than you're paying me. And that's kind of what, what, he's, what he's saying here. Is he's saying, if you think it's the works of the law, well, then there's really no promise because the promise is based on faith in the promise, and so really faith and promise mean nothing. You, but he's been batting, battering away going, no, that's not it. That's not it at all. Verse 14, if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise is canceled. For the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all in God's sight. So what is the purpose of the law? Is it really that important? Well, of course it is. He says, for the law produces wrath. He says, where there is no law, there is no transgression. In other words, where there is no law, there's no recognition of sin. There's no understanding of sin. And if there's no understanding of sin or recognition of sin, then there's no understanding or recognition of judgment. 
And that's a bad place to be. It's a bad place to think that you're walking into a place that's going to judge you and you have no idea what they're judging you. Well, you have no idea they're going to judge you, let alone what they're going to judge you on. And so God has given us his word that we read it. And in particular, when you see the law here, he's making a reference to the Mosaic law and think Ten Commandments. What's the purpose? They, they, the purpose was never for, for those commandments to, to save you, for you to obey them perfectly or enough times that God says, okay, you're in, you're good. It was, that was never, the design was always to reveal. It's kind of like a mirror. You know, when you look in a mirror and you got dirt on your face or maybe food in your teeth, right? You don't pull the mirror off the wall and start rubbing your face with it or kind of gouging out your, you know, getting whatever's in your teeth out, right? Because that's not the purpose of the mirror. The mirror is to show you. It's to reveal to you. Hey, dude, you got something on your face. You might want to wipe that off. Okay, thank you. I mean, so, so you wipe it off. And that's what the law is. The law was never meant to save. The law was meant to expose, to reveal, so that you'd get thinking. And I would get thinking and realize, wow, I'm reading this law and I'm not sure I'm keeping it all the way I should be keeping it. I might just need a savior. I might just need help. And when you get there and I get there, we see verse 16 kind of coming into play. He says, this is why the promise is by faith so that it may be according to grace. You see, grace, that kind of puts a light on God and we see him and it glorifies him. It takes all of our boasting, all of our bragging, because we can't work our way there. We're, we're, we're like helpless. We need a Savior. And when we, when we try to work our way there, we're robbing God of His glory, and we're exhausting ourselves. But when we finally come to that place, it's like, I need help. And God says, here it is in Jesus. Here's the million dollars. Just sign the back of the check. Just download the app. You've got to do nothing. There's no work involved in this. That glorifies him. That, that, that gives him what he really, really wants and deserves. To close out, he's going to circle back around here. And he's going to go back to Abraham. And he's going to just kind of drill down one more time on this, the quality. The, what, what does this faith look like? And, and how might we come to understand it so that we might see it in our own lives. Starting with verse 17. He says, In God's sight, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He believed in God. He gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. So he's making reference. Abraham believed that God would raise the dead. Abraham believed that God was who he said he was just by looking at creation. He was without excuse, Paul said earlier. Um, he said he, he believed hoping against hope. So that he became the father of many nations according to what had been spoken. In other words, God gave him this promise. I'm going to make you, uh, I'm going to give you many descendants. I'll make you a, a great nation. And uh, by all accounts, Abraham would look around and ask anybody on the street, hey, do you think this is going to happen? I'm 75 years old. My wife is, we've been trying. My wife, is this really going to happen? Do we really have any hope in this? And most people would say no. But he hoped beyond that. He said, so will, so will your descendants will be, verse 19, he considered his own body to be already dead since he was about 100 years old and also considered the deadness of Sarah's womb without weakening in the faith. He did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness 
Now it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I'm going to go back to verse 20. He says, he did not waver. Hmm. Those of you that know Abraham, might he have done something that might qualify as wavering? Right? So they're barren. God's made a promise. And Sarah says to Abraham, as many of us have said before to God, Sarah said to Abraham, let's help God out here. We don't have a child. I want you to sleep with Hagar. And let's get a child that way. And apparently Abraham goes, I'm good. God probably needs some help. Do we know who was birthed at that point? Ishmael. You trace the lineage of Ishmael, and you'll come and you'll see the origin of where the Arab nations came from. Is it any wonder that the Arabs hate the Jews? Because the promise passed through Isaac, not through Ishmael. And so that's why the fighting even today still happens. And that was because Abraham and Sarah thought God needed some help. Any, anybody, can you relate to that? Do you ever kind of think, God, hey, I'm going to help you out here. I know you're busy. A lot going on. Let me, do, let me just do a little bit here. And that, <laughs> that constitutes wavering to me. So what is Paul talking about here? I believe what Paul is talking about is... Abraham's initial belief and faith and trust was real. It was legitimate. It was genuine. And it was credit to him, boom, as righteousness. And that's how our faith is. When we put our faith and trust in Christ, realizing we need a Savior, then every day thereafter is we live our lives in light of that decision, and it requires faith. And sometimes we're up to the task, and sometimes we're not. And so in that sense, our faith wavers, but the object of our faith never wavers. Abraham continually came back to God, even though when he wavered, he came back to God. And what, what Paul is saying, I believe inspired by God, is he's propping up Abraham and saying, here is a man of faith. Here's an example of faith. And I love the example because it's not perfect. Because I've wavered. But what hasn't wavered is my object of my faith, and that is Jesus. I've always come back to him because where else would I go, right? It's like the disciples said, Jesus, where else do we go? You have the words of life. You, you try other things, and you find out they're wanting, they're waiting, that they're not what Jesus brings you. And so in that sense, we have this, this strong faith, this, this example of faith that he's propping up, that saving faith is not a perfect faith, it's not a, but the object is secure, and then one other thing he says that's powerful is he talks about how he was fully convinced that what he had promised he was able to perform. Abraham, the promise that God gave Abraham, Abraham was fully convinced. Again, the object of his faith wasn't his faith. It was, it was God. And he was fully convinced that God's promise would come to fruition. And he left his home country for that. And he walked his son up the steps to the altar because of that. I just wonder of all the promises in here, how many can you say, man, I'm fully convinced of that? 
when, when, when Jesus said, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you, can you be fully convinced that even though you feel lonely, you are not lonely? You are not alone, I should say. God is there. And though you want to feel alone and, the, and, and though, the, though you have an adversary that wants you to look around and say, look how alone you are, you're never alone. God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Can you be fully convinced of that? When you have this temptation coming at you and you feel like, I got no escape. This is just who I am. I can't help myself. And then you think of the promise that God says, no temptation is going to come to you that's not going to have a way out and I'm going to provide it. Do you, do you, are you fully convinced of that promise when that happens? Because you've cut that promise in the same way that Abraham had that promise to move you past that temptation. When Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Are you fully convinced that, that this world and, and you living for yourself and trying to get everything you can in this world, you're not going to find life that way? Are you fully convinced that if you give up that and you, and you selflessly live for others that you will find life in that? Can you be fully convinced of that? Can, I be, can you be fully convinced of what we read in the last part of chapter 3? Can you be fully convinced that you have been, uh, you're um, righteous, the righteousness of Christ has been credited to you, that you're redeemed, that you're justified, that there's been propitiation for your sins? Can you believe that and not ever worry and be racked with guilt and shame? Because... That's who you are. Can you be fully convinced of that? This is a life that God wants for us, but it requires faith and being fully convinced of what we have in the way of promises. When Jesus says, if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come back and receive you to myself. To those of you that maybe you're struggling and wondering if you're gonna live, maybe you have a health situation and you're just not sure, can you be fully convinced that even if you die, you're going to be in a good place? You're going to be in the presence of Jesus, and he is going, and he's gone to prepare a place for you. Can, can you be fully convinced of that? Can you live in light of being fully convinced of that? Because that is what we have here. That's what God has given us. That's what we receive when we put our faith and trust in Christ. Now, let me come back to the question I asked you. You're standing there, and God says, why should I let you in? And I, th I gave you the first answer was, well, I've tried my best to be a good Christian. Sounds good. Sounds virtuous. But it sounds like a lot of you. It sounds like, it sounds like works. It sounds like I'm going to stand and say, well, here's my spiritual resume, God. I, I think it's pretty good. The second answer was, I believe in Jesus and try to do his will. Now, that sounds closer, but that's faith plus works. That's you saying, Jesus got me almost all the way. I got it from here, Jesus. Let me finish this last little bit in my part. My friends, you will not get credited with righteousness with that mentality or that attitude. And let's get to the third one, which is kind of borderline. I believe in him with all of my heart. If you answer that like I think most people answer that, that is where you're making your belief and your faith a work. Because what you're trying to say is, I, with all of my heart, I believed. So the, the quality and the quantity of my faith, I, God, it's enough to let me in. So your faith now becomes a work. It becomes what you offer to God and say, it's because of my faith and I believe with all my heart, let me in. My friends, the answer that I hope and pray that each and every one of us will say when we stand before him when he says, why, Kevin, should I let you in? My answer is going to be because of my faith in Jesus' work to save me. And that's it. That's all I got. He did the work. I did nothing. 
and I'm hanging on to that with dear life. That is the answer. So my challenge for you this week in light of that, again, this is the book of Romans. You're going to see as we keep going, you're going to go, is there ever a command in the book of Romans? Ah, it's many chapters in. Why does Paul wait so long to tell us what to do? Why does Paul wait so long to go, therefore? Because it's so important that we understand the God we serve and we worship for his glory and our good. And so my challenge for you this week is just to reflect on this teaching. And the first thing is reflect on these questions. Is my faith just a belief or is it belief in action? If I'm on a stand uh, in, in court and I'm being accused of whether my faith is saving faith or not, just ask myself, is my faith merely mentally ascending to some beliefs or really, truly, is there work, and, and are there good works that have, that have come as a, a proof not as a prerequisite. Secondly, is God someone I can trust completely? I mean, in light of what he's done, can, can you not trust a God like that? What more does he need to do to trust him? And very closely related, is Jesus someone I can fully surrender my life to and follow, where I give him my life and I live for him, I no longer live for myself? And then lastly, how sure am I of going to heaven when I die? Because if you doubt that, you're losing what God wants to give you in the way of assurance and peace about that. So those are some questions, just some diagnostic questions that kind of really assess your faith. Is it in you? Is it in, is, is it in your faith? Or is it truly in God? Okay? I'm going to ask the band to come up here, and we are going to give just, just a few minutes to kind of you and God time. Okay? Uh, Stephen and I will be up here. If you want someone to come and pray with you, we're going to be up here to, to pray with you. If you want to stay right where you are, but let's just take some time to think about what we have in Christ who we have in Christ and where we are. If you want to come down here and just kneel down here, you just feel like that's just the place where you want to be, come on down. If you want to stay where you are, but let's really give God our hearts and our thoughts, our prayers and the meditation of, of the things that we've heard as we continue to worship him.